So take your Bibles and let's begin our study tonight at chapter 7, verse 25. Chapter 7 was begun by the Apostle Paul in answer to a question that they had written him in a letter with regard to uh, intimacy in a Christian marriage. And so the first several verses of chapter 7 were devoted to that kind of issue that Paul wanted to address with them in terms of uh, what was right for a husband and wife with regard to the the levels of intimacy that they were to uh, enjoy together, and then talking about divorce and remarriage and a bunch of other things that he had uh, given in detail with regard to the marriage relationship, which is very, very important uh, for all of us today still. It's very wise counsel that Paul gave. And keep in mind that when Paul didn't have the actual word from the Lord, he was telling us so in this letter. Uh, he said it in more than one place. Like, in, for instance, um, what we'll be reading uh, today, he's going to be talking about some things that the Lord hadn't actually spoken explicitly on, but he says, I will give you my opinion. But keep that in mind, that his opinion, because he was an apostle, was that which carries the weight of scriptural integrity that we rely on um, for uh, the inerrancy of the Word of God. And so Paul's words, his own opinions, although he stated it as such, it's still the inerrant word of God because the Holy Spirit of the Lord gave him these things as the apostle of the Lord to speak to the churches. And so we're grateful for these instructions that he's given. Verse 25 begins to answer a similar question that apparently was raised by the Corinthian church. Um, It has to do with the virgins in the home in the Corinthian church there was a bunch of families that had daughters who were of marriageable age and they didn't really know what Paul would say with regard to how to deal with uh, the daughter who typically in that culture would be given in marriage the marriage was arranged by the father typically and That was the case in both Jewish and in Greek or Roman cultures. So Paul is addressing this issue of what should the Christian family do with regard to the virgin children that are in the home but are of marriageable age. So verse 25 says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep, as those who did not weep. Those who rejoice, as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy, as though they did not possess. 
and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There are a couple of things that I want to point out in this passage that we've just read. Talking about again, initially here, regarding the virgins in the home. He had no commandment from the Lord, he said, but he gave his judgment based upon what he saw happening in the world around him in that day. And of course, cultures change over the years, and we don't have the same customs that they had in that day with regard to the giving of our children in marriage. Although it might sound like a practical thing for the father to make that decision on behalf of his daughter, today's culture doesn't really address that kind of a situation where that would be acceptable, uh, or normal at least. Um, The woman is attracted to a man, a man to a woman. And that attraction should be monitored by the parents. Certainly we don't want to just let somebody come along and snatch our daughter away without really knowing anything about the man. Uh, So there is some degree of care, certainly, for the parents to have with regard to the daughter's dating individuals that she feels drawn to, um, making proper suggestions, making proper arrangements through uh, the the parental guidance. Uh, That's certainly part of what we should be doing as parents, making sure that if we are Christians and your daughter is a Christian, that she should be marrying a Christian. So looking at that individual's integrity is certainly of great value and importance. But Paul addresses this issue from their perspective as the father um, wanting to know whether or not he should allow his daughter to be married, given the fact that Paul says we are facing here distressing times. I suppose, verse 26 says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. Now, what's he referring to? It's really very difficult to pinpoint uh, that exactly, but... The understanding from most writers, expositional writers, implies that the beginnings of persecution had begun, especially among the Jews. That certainly was the case. It was during the time of Claudius's reign, around 44 to 54 BC, AD, that uh, the Jews were indeed persecuted. It's during that time that um, Agrippa and Priscilla were forced out of Rome because they were Jewish, but they were Christians. And yet, because of their Jewishness, and because Claudius had instructed that all Jews be removed from the city of Rome, they had to leave. And they went to Ephesus, they went to Corinth, and they ministered in both of those cities, and Paul met up with them as a tent maker. That was their business also, and became dear friends with them. But that issue that had become an issue under Claudius's reign was now beginning to affect Christians under the new Caesar, who was Caesar Nero. And remember later on, some ten years after perhaps Paul wrote this letter, Rome was burned with a great fire that was blamed on the Christians. 
So the person, persecution of Christians was now beginning to become a very more difficult and serious problem for the believers apparently in Corinth as well as in other uh, Gentile cities that were of Roman influence. Also, he says later on that he wanted to spare them because this world was coming to an end. In verse 31, he said, And those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Paul believed in the imminent return of Christ in his day. Remember in 1 Thessalonians, which was the first letter that Paul wrote several years before he wrote this first letter to the Corinthians, Paul had written to the Thessalonians and talked to them about the coming of the Lord. And it was there in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians where Paul says that the dead in Christ shall rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Together we will there be with the Lord from that time on. Paul said in second in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that he was expecting the Lord's return. That's why he said it with himself in mind when he said, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. So Paul elsewhere talks about the resurrection, and in earlier letters it was a known fact. Jesus himself said, keep looking up, your redemption draws near. He impressed upon the earliest days of the disciples' ministries that the Lord's return is indeed imminent. That means it could be any time. We should always have an anticipation, as Paul did, of the Lord's return any moment. That does not mean he's coming today. That does not mean he's coming next week. In fact, we cannot, we must not ever, ever try to say anything at all with regard to a particular date on which the Lord would come. So many people have been led astray by date setters. And that is certainly not something that Paul was doing, nor was it the, the uh, purpose of any of the New Testament writers. It was not the purpose of Jesus to give that impression that there's a date that you can set. In fact, he said, only the Father knows the day or the hour. Even he himself did not know whether that was in his uh, humanity that he was speaking about this uncertainty in his mind as to when it would happen, or whether it's the fact that the Father, even though Jesus is now raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, it seems to be only the Father's decision. And I like that thought because according to Jewish custom, in a Jewish wedding, the Father sent the bridegroom when it was the Father's decision for the bridegroom to go and get his bride. The bridegroom didn't have that authority to just say, I'm going to pick up my wife now. That was the father's decision to do so. And so it's a beautiful picture of our father, our heavenly father, sending his holy son Jesus to pick up us, his bride, at the father's appointed time. When the bridal chamber is ready, that was the implication in the Jewish wedding ceremony, that the father would deem whether or not that bridal chamber that the groom had been constructing was set up properly with all of the things that needed to be done in their proper order, in the proper place, 
And when it was exactly as the father intended for it to be, then it was right for the son to go and get his bride. Again, none of us knows the time. Paul didn't. But he believed it was going to happen during his lifetime. And that's why he said, because of the present persecution, apparently, that's taking place, the present distress, and in verse 31, the fact that the world, this form of the world, is passing away, that we soon will be resurrected, and all of that is very near. Paul wanted the Corinthian church to do things well, and with regard to the best options, with regard to the appointing of a husband for the man's daughter. The time is short, he said in verse 29, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Again, he's expressing the fact that singleness can be a better arrangement for the individual than being married. The reason for that, under difficult situations, is pretty obvious. The man would be very concerned about his wife and his children, and that could become a distraction from his serving the Lord. A man or woman who are single don't have that constraint. They don't have that concern, that extra burden of another person that they have to be concerned about. And so that's why Paul emphasizes the fact here and in those other places that we've read, again in verse 27, he said, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So again, he's talking about the fact that if you're married, stay married. If you're not married, stay single. Either one is good. But he continues on to say in verse 33, but he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And in verse 32, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Now, carrying that thought on in verse 34, he also talks about the wife with regard to her condition as a believer. And he says in verse 34, there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman carries about, cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So the same is true with regard to the women as it is with regard to the men. And then in verse 35 he says, And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Paul says, look, if you want to get married, get married. In fact, he focuses on marriage a lot of different places in his writings, and he never ever says you must not be married. He must not be forbidden to marry a wife, or she must not be forbidden to marry a husband. It's their own personal choice to do so as they are led by the Lord if they are believers. So it's necessary for Anyone who is single, if he is called to that singleness, that he should stay single. We've looked at that the last time as well. If he's married, obviously divorce is not a, an option unless it were because of adultery or fornication. And if a divorce does place, take place, that man should be very careful with regard to his singleness. If he's not able to stay single and he has divorced his wife, 
That becomes an issue unless the wife has remarried. Then he's free to marry. So these are the issues, again, that Paul has been addressing. And now in verse 37 he says, let me read verse 36. If any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, his daughter, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. So again, he's giving the father the option of allowing his daughter to be married if she is called to that, or to be single if she is called to that. And he does not sin if he gives her in marriage. He does not sin if he retains her in his home. If he does keep her in his home, he bears the responsibility then of caring for her. And again, most of the families in that day, as far as the Jewish culture especially were concerned, but also in the Roman and, and the Greek culture, the, the daughter was kind of a liability. But if they could afford to do so, keeping the daughter at home, raising her until she reaches the flower of her age, if she's not wanting to get married, then he's not to force her into that, but to leave her in the home and keep her as his daughter. In verse 37, Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, he does well. Verse 38 says, So then, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Again, because of the situation in which they find themselves, the pressing situation, the distress that they are under, the fact that the Lord may be coming soon, Paul is giving instruction here. It's his opinion that it probably would be wise for them to consider that she should stay unmarried if it is God's calling in her life. Verse 39 and 40 continue to the end of the chapter, and he says this, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Make sure that if any separation takes place and the wife or the husband decide to remarry, it should be as a believer marrying a believer. Never allow yourselves, if you are in a situation where now you are single, to be attracted to an unbeliever to the point where you would become married to that unbeliever. It's just not a very, very good thing. In fact, it's spoken of against here very strongly by the Apostle Paul. And finally, again in verse 40, he tells us, this is his opinion. He says, she's happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. Paul just kind of throws that in. By the way, I think I've got the Spirit of God. I think I have the authority as the apostle to the Gentiles to make this disclosure to you with regard to this question that you have asked me regarding marriage, regarding singleness, regarding the virgins. Now chapter 8 begins with another question that they apparently had asked Paul. And this has to do with the temple worship of the Gentiles in Corinth. The temple of Artemis, or Diana, as she is also known, was a very major temple in the city of Corinth, as it was in several of the uh, Grecian cities and Roman cities as well. And that became a really big issue because 
In Corinth, there were somewhere in the order of a thousand prostitutes, both male and female, but they roamed the streets looking for worshippers of their gods. Part of the worship was sexual, and they already knew from what Paul had written in chapter 7 that that's not something that should be partaken of as a believer. But what they didn't ask him until now that Paul answers this question is regard to the other aspect of temple worship in the sacrifices of animals in the heathen temples. They would do sacrifices much like the Jews did in their sacrifices, but their understanding was that the spirits that they were sacrificing to wouldn't eat the flesh, so there was no need to actually burn the sacrifice, only to kill the sacrifice, and the meat that was to be then taken by the temple servants as a portion for themselves, and whatever was left over was sold in meat markets to the population at large. So these temple meat markets were set up with all the meat from the offerings of the animals in that heathen temple in Corinth. And that's one of the best places to buy good quality meat. Because after all, they offered the best animals that they had to the sacrifices to their gods. And so there was a lot of very, very good steak, filet mignon, top round. There was all kinds of pork products, whether it was a ham steak or pork chops or ribs. They were delicious meat that they could buy at a discount price because those temple meat markets were the least expensive place to go to buy great quality meat. Now, the Christians are uncertain about whether or not they should be buying and eating this meat. So they've asked the question of Paul, and Paul in chapter 8 gives his answer. Let's take a look. He says in verse 1, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Well, why is he saying that? Because some of the Corinthians had a great deal of knowledge in this matter, they thought, and their knowledge was such that they apparently were ridiculing those Corinthians who weren't as knowledgeable as they were on this subject of offering uh, meat to idols and whether or not they should be eating that meat. So it seems to be a conflict that was based upon those who believe it's okay and those who believe it's not okay, and the ones who believed it was okay were identifying themselves as more knowledgeable than those weaker Christians. Paul's going to address this, and he starts out by saying, knowledge puffs up. I like the way he puts that. It's like blowing up a balloon or filling your head with air. Have you ever heard anybody called an airhead? Well, that's what they were. They were a bunch of airheads. They were puffed up. Why? Because they thought themselves better than the others because they had knowledge where the others did not. Paul is saying it's not knowledge that is of greatest importance. It is love because love edifies. Love builds up the body. We're to edify one another. We're to build one another up. He's going to address that fact in other places. 
But here he's talking about this issue of eating meats served that was offered to idols in a Christian home, should it be done or not. And he says, you make sure that however you decide, whichever way you want to go in this matter, it is done in love. Later on in chapter 14, the love chapter, he's going to talk about the fact that love is greater than all of these other things, greater than knowledge, greater than prophecy, greater than even faith. Love is what excels all other things. He says that very much in the same fashion here in verse 1. Verse 2 says, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So Paul is saying, look, you may think you know a lot about things, but you don't really know anything. Not at all. God knows all things. And when you compare our knowledge to God's knowledge, you realize how vastly different our knowledge is from our Creator. Vastly superior is His knowledge to our knowledge. And that's the point that Paul is making. You know nothing, even though you think you know everything. You know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know. And so that's important to remember. There are a lot of things that we don't know. And I think it is vast universe that God has created and how we're starting to see further and further into the distant realms of our universe. So many millions and millions of light years away. We can see stars and galaxies and all kinds of things that are being viewed for the first time with this new James Webb telescope that we have that's orbiting the sun about a million miles from us. And that is remarkable technology. And we're learning a great deal just from the few images that we've already seen from this telescope. How much more clear and uh, amazingly bright, brilliant the whole universe is. And how massive and wonderful it is in terms of its design and color, its beauty looking at the neutrino stars, looking at all of the various clusters of stars, looking at our own Milky Way galaxy and seeing the various stars that are in this one galaxy, looking at the planet Jupiter at a most amazing um, image that is created by this wonderful tool that is now available to us. But we're not even scratching the surface in what we know. How did God create the heavens and the earth by his word. And by the word of his power, he holds them all together. We're finding things out about the atom that we didn't know before. They've discovered particles within the proton, subatomic particles that weigh more than the proton itself. So it's a particle that's within the proton as part of the proton's weight, and yet when it's isolated, it weighs more than the proton weighs. Uh, that's beyond our ability to understand the concept of anything like this. God knows it all in detail because he made it. We're just scratching the surface and we know nothing. That's what Paul's saying here with regard to these Corinthians. You have knowledge, but you know nothing compared to what God knows. Verse 4 says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, 
we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. There is only one God, our Lord God, our Father, in heaven, and his Son, Jesus Christ, who made all things. Jesus is indeed the Creator, the Word of God, the one in the book of Genesis that made the heavens and the earth. And when the Father said to the Son, as the Spirit gave witness, let us make man in our own image, that man, Adam, was made in the image of God, the triune God, and the Spirit of God breathed breath into him. They all three took part in the creation of man. Let it be certain in your mind that our God, our triune God, is the one and only God, and there is no other God beside him. I'm reminded, as Paul talks about here, these idols that are nothing. They certainly are nothing, but they're worshipped as though they are something. Now, the writer of the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, we're not told who wrote this, but in Psalm 115, and it's also in Psalm 135, we find a description of these idols that are given here in the book of Psalms. I'd like to read Psalm 115, if you would, with me. Join me there, beginning with verse 3. He says there in verse 3 of 115, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. And those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. And then he goes on to say, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. O house of Levi, trust in the Lord. The writer of the book of Psalms says very, very plainly that the idols are foolishness. They are nothing. They're made by men and they cannot do anything because they're just idols. And there's nothing behind them that can be worshipped or should be worshipped. Now, Paul will address also the worship of idols in another place. We're not going to get into that tonight, but I do want to go with me, if you would, to chapter 44 of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says something very much the same that the psalmist said in a slightly different manner. He says, We begin with um, verse 12 of chapter 44. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, an idol, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man. 
according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it and makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. But earlier in the same chapter, in verse 6, God says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. And that's what Paul is saying here to the Corinthian church. These idols are nothing. They're called idols, and they're worshipped, but there's nothing that is of any value in the worship of those idols. He's making a point here with regard to the eating of meat offered to idols. So he says, again in verse 5, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. One God, as we just read in Isaiah, as we just saw in the Old Testament, Paul is confirming for us in the New Testament. Verse 7 says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Not everyone understands this. Not everyone is given that understanding, uh, that insight, that wisdom to apply the knowledge that we have with regard to idol worship and the eating of meat offered to idols. For some, he says, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as if a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So if they're eating meat that's offered to an idol, because they think that it's wrong, their conscience is convicting them of it, and because of that conscience conviction, it is sin to them. Paul is saying they are defiled because of their conscience having been bothered by eating this meat. But, he says in verse 8, food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest someone, how, somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Paul is saying here, there is some who think it's wrong, and if they eat it, their conscience bothers them, so they avoid it. And because of that conscious issue of their own heart, they see others partaking of the meat that's offered to idols, and they think it's wrong for them too. They're a weaker vessel, a weaker Christian in that regard. Because Paul says, food doesn't commend us to God. It's not what we eat. It's not what we don't eat. Remember, Jesus himself said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, it's what comes out of a man that defiles a man. Remember also, Jesus told Peter, when Peter was on the rooftop in Caesarea, or Joppa, and a sheet was brought down before him in a vision with all kinds of living creatures, both unclean and clean, 
And the voice came to him and said, Eat, Peter. And Peter said, No, Lord, not me. Not I can't do that. I'm a good Jew. I've never eaten anything that is unclean. Three times that happened to him, until on the third time, the Lord spoke to Peter very clearly and said, Don't call that which I have cleansed unclean. Referring now to the Gentiles. But Peter went to the Gentiles, and he gave the word of God to the Gentiles, and many Gentiles began to get saved as a result of Peter's and others' ministries later on. It was the beginning of the Gentile church. And then in Antioch, several months after that, Peter was in Antioch with the Gentile Christians, joining together with them, eating whatever they were serving, whether it was ham steak or whether it was pork chops, we don't know. It could have been beef, we aren't told. But he was eating with Gentiles, and that in itself was considered to be an anathema to a Jew. And then when the Jews from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, came up to Antioch to see what was going on in Antioch, Peter removed himself from the Gentile fellowship and began hanging around with just the Jews. Paul called him on that. Paul said, look, Peter, you are making a grave mistake because you're giving the Gentiles the wrong impression. We should never offend our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And there are many, many other examples of those kinds of offenses that are done in the name of Christ, but they should not be done. And we as believers must be very careful to avoid offending our brothers and sisters in the same way. It doesn't have to be with regard to meat that was offered up to idols. That's just the example that Paul is using here. But there are many, many other areas that aren't really given clearly in the Word of God for us to know whether it is right or wrong. But there are many churches that have begun the process of demanding of their people certain activities to be disallowed or expected. Some of those have to do with the eating of meat or not. Some of those have to do with mixed bathing or not. Some of those have to do with going to a dance or to a movie or not. Some of them have to do with whether or not the woman should cover her hair or not. There are all kinds of very legalistic approaches to the Word of God by well-meaning Christians, but their emphasis on this desire to do things strictly is going to be an offense to somebody. And because of that, Paul would say, don't do that. Don't make that an issue. If it's not clearly in the Word of God, let it be a matter of wise choice. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul gives an open door to doing anything. That's not the case at all. Paul will later on going to go on to say that I have a liberty to do anything, but not everything is expedient. Not everything is what I should do. And Paul will also say, as he will end this letter, that he does not want to cause a brother to stumble, and he's going to give his uh, explanation of that in the last verse of this chapter when we get there. But he says in verse 9, before the end of the chapter, he says in verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Yes, it is our responsibility not to stumble our brothers. 
Now in verse 10 he says, If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? He might say, okay, well, he's doing it, so I guess it's all right. So he does partake of it. But then he begins to wonder, should I have done that? So in verse 11 he says, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So leave it as a matter between you and the Lord. If you partake of something that isn't directly spoken of in the Word, whether it's smoking cigarettes or cigars, that's not a sin. It doesn't smell very good for most of us who don't smoke. But frankly, the Word of God doesn't say anything about it. It may shorten your life, but I know of cases where a lot of 90-plus-year-old people are smoking several cigarettes a day, and they're still going fine. But yes, it is proven that smoking is a cause of cancer. So it's a risk factor. Are you willing to take that risk? Well, most of us aren't. And I'm glad that I quit smoking at the age of 27 before I became a believer. I'm glad that I quit drinking when I became a believer and poured all that alcohol down the kitchen sink and smelled such a terrible stench that I knew I would never touch it again. But I'm not going to condemn anybody for doing anything that he feels, like those in Corinth, that it's because of your knowledge in the Word of God, you don't see it as a problem for yourself. But don't do it in the presence of one who thinks it is an issue. That's why Paul says in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is saying, Look, if it's a matter of an issue of stumbling my brother, I'm not going to eat meat in front of that individual. I was listening to uh, Pastor Jack Hibbs, who was a pastor of Calvary Chapel in China Hills, very, very well-known pastor with a great ministry. And he was talking about one of the days while he was in his early years doing ministry in Russia. And he was doing street ministry. And in the street ministry on this particular occasion, a man got saved from his preaching. And the man came up to him afterward and implored him, please come to my house and tell my family, my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, they all need to hear this. And so Jack agreed. And so he brought a few other Christians with him, his wife, Lisa, and himself, and a translator so that he could be able to communicate the gospel in this home. He got to the home at the appointed time, and when he knocked on the door, the door was opened by the father, and the father was so, so very excited to see Jack. In fact, they hadn't seen any Westerners at all. This was a very first time for this Russian family to have this kind of an encounter with those who had lived their lives in freedom for all of their lives compared to those who had lived under the bondage of communism. And he wanted to have Jack come in his house. But he did not want Jack to come into his house until they first had a toast at the door, which was their custom. 
So he hands Jack a glass of cognac. And Jack said it smelled like gasoline to him. It was terrible. And he says, oh, I can't do this. But the translator quickly said, you must do it. This is an honor for this man. If you refuse him this honor, you just won't be able to get into his house and all will be lost. So Jack kept on saying, I can't, I can't do it. And finally he did it because it was the only way for him to get into the house to preach the word of God. So he closed up his nose and he took that shot of cognac and yes, I'm sure it went down very hard. But he entered into the house of the man and he sat at the table. And as he sat at the table, what he didn't realize was taking place was that every 12 or 15 minutes they would have another toast. Jack says they took a toast 15 times during that meal for three hours. It was a feast beyond imagining. But he said because he had prayed when he went into the house, he was reminded of the Gospel of Mark where it says that nothing no poison will harm you. He took that literally, and he went into that house believing that God would protect him. And after that three hours of eating meal and drinking all of those toasts, he never felt it. Neither did his wife, nor all of his team. He preached the gospel, and the whole house was saved. That was a miracle that God protected him. He honored Jack's desire not to do what Jack knew was for him something that would bring very, very grievous sin because of his conscience upon himself. But because of the freedom that God gave him at that time, it was a miracle that God gave on that occasion that Jack never forgot. He told it much better than I did, so you might want to get his teaching on uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and listen to that yourself. But the point of all of that is, God does honor those who know and those who don't know. Those who have a conviction against certain things should keep that conviction unless the Lord gives them the freedom. Those who don't have a conviction on those things, make sure that the Word of God does not speak against those things. And yes, the Word of God does definitely speak against getting drunk. So if you're drinking wine at your meal or a beer at the evening uh, after, the off home, uh, after your time at the office, don't let it cause you to get a buzz because that is when it starts. That is a problem. You're giving your mind over to some other control that you should not be doing. So I caution from myself and for many of us who are believers, drinking is not a, 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 something that we would do for us. And if you drink more than you should, and you should know what that is in your own case, then you should stop drinking altogether because you know it's wrong. But there are other issues. There are other things that shouldn't be prohibited by one and accepted by another when that causes conflict between that brother or sister. 
So that's what chapter 8 is all about. He answers their question with regard to the offering up of meat to idols and how that should impact the believer. He's going to talk more on a few other topics that the people of Corinth are asking him about uh, in that letter that they wrote that he mentioned in chapter 7, verse 1. So chapters 9 and 10 will continue along these same thoughts, but there's good instruction here for us as well as for the Corinthian church. Even though our cultures are completely different now, we still can benefit from an understanding of what Paul is saying to the churches in our day as well as to the church in Corinth in his day. So keep that in mind. Read onward, read ahead, and uh, get to know what Paul is saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace.